Drax is the largest provider of renewable electricity in the UK and plays a critical role in ensuring a secure energy system. The company has plans to invest billions in new infrastructure, such as bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, which will create thousands of jobs, whilst also delivering the energy needed by homes and businesses up and down the UK. Discover more at Drax.com. Hi, everyone. I want to have um, as much time for this topic as possible because it's so such a juicy topic, so I do want to get this started promptly. Very important, yes. Um, thank you so much for coming, and I hope everyone's got their drinks or getting their drinks, and great, again, to see such a packed room for um, the Spectator panel. We're here to discuss today about whether or not Rishi Sunak is right about Rwanda. It's a very uh, interesting topic, and actually, for months now, a debate has been uh, going on in the Spectator offices about this. Um, between Kate Andrews, our esteemed economics editor, and Fraser Nelson, our editor. Um, <laughs> those of you who listen to Coffee House Shots will know the kind of legendary battles that they get into. You know, first there was COVID lockdown, and then it was whether or not Liz Truss was right, and now this seems to be the third front line that's opened up. And so, you know, we, th- we thought we'd do this debate. And um, Fraser has phoned a friend, the Immigration Minister, Robert Jenrick. <laughs> So, 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 like a high-profile friend. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a big get. Uh, so they're holding each other's hands under the table. Um, so, <laughs> um, so here, so I, I'd like to start basically by um, getting everyone to set out their stalls, um, and then I want to get into the actual debate itself. Um, so because we want to focus on the debate, Fraser, if you could start, but just two or three minutes of just setting out your stall about Rwanda and why you think Rishi Sunak is right about it. Okay. Well, you might notice this isn't a very balanced panel, but Kate was insistent she could um, take on both of us by herself. It's quite Thank touching, you. really. Uh, but um, anyway, we'll, um, I'll get... Now, the thing is, the, fir- the first ever debate Kate and I did was... Uh, we were on the same panel. We were advocating one of the most unpopular positions in British politics for the case for the... Um, for, for granting official status to um, undocumented migrants, to basically say that after 10 years, they should be accepted as citizens that have led a lawful life. Now, Kate and I, have, our paths have crossed since then, which always puzzled me. We're both basically liberals. We're both sympathetic to the plights of those who move countries to have a better life for themselves. But what I, but what I can genuinely can't work out, and perhaps I'm about to find out from Kate, is uh, why we disagree here. I don't think anybody in this room has anything less than complete sympathy for those who risk life to start at the very bottom of our society. Um, I don't think anybody doesn't have sympathy for those crossing the, the, the Mediterranean right now. It's something like 2,500 dead so far this year. And the onward journey will be here to this country. It is an absolute crisis, a moral crisis that we are living through. Um, as well as being, I mean, the, the sheer cost of keeping 117,000 people in B&Bs at the cost of £100 a night, all coming out of a DFID budget. You've got the, the pressure this puts on these hotels that are booked out to accommodate it. You've got the pressure it puts on an asylum system that obviously can't cope. But to me, fundamentally, this is a human tragedy because right now we are playing into the hands of people smugglers who will charge 5, 10, 15, 20,000 pounds people to come here and for as long as those who arrive in Britain have got no realistic chance of deportation, then we are playing into their hands. We are passively becoming part of one of the most, the great giant evils of our times. Now, 
I, uh, now, when the Rwanda policy came out, it was quite dramatic, but I was instinctively in favour of it because, uh, because of two reasons. One was what Tony Abbott did in Australia. It wasn't so long ago that Australia was finding three to 400 people a year dying on their way to Australia. The Australian people thought they just simply couldn't, obviously they didn't want this to happen. But when this is up a system whereby any legal rivals would be deported to a third country, it stopped. Mm. This is no longer a controversial policy in Australia. Left and right agree that this is the best way to control the borders and to minimise human suffering. Also, in Q3 of last year, we had something like a quarter of small boat arrivals were from Albania. Now, at one point, I think I'm right in saying, Robert, it was estimated that 1 to 2% of the Albanian male population had come to Britain via a small boat. What happened then? The Prime Minister agreed a deportation deal with Albania. The flights started taking off, and as soon as they did, those arrivals stopped because nobody's going to spend three to five thousand pounds on a people smuggler if they think that when they get there, there's even a one in three chance of them being deported. Mm -hmm. So this shows that the deportations break the business model of the people traffickers. That is the enemy, not those poor souls trying to get here. That is the enemy, and that is the only way that anybody in the world has found of breaking this evil that confronts us. Now, right now the Supreme Court is due to rule in um, November, and I hope that it does, and I've got a feeling that if we do manage to have weekly deportations to Rwanda, that this will fundamentally change the logic. Who then is going to spend all of that money? And by the way, it's heartbreaking. They will borrow, they will scrape things together. You know, but, but the point is, acquiescing in this isn't good for us, it isn't good for them. In fact, we are partaking in this, in this terrible, terrible evil that we can, see, we can see happening right over the world. I will be wrong, Cindy's trying to shut me up here, but <laughs> I will accept that I'm wrong if the Rwanda deportations take place and after four or five months we haven't seen a significant, we're talking huge drop in small boat arrivals. But my logic, based on what we saw here with Albania and Australia, this is the only humane way of confronting one of the most important issues of our time. Thank you so much, Fraser. Um, Kate, you, you can go next, and then Robert will come to you. Thank you. So I think something that the whole panel can agree on is that the small boats crisis is by no means an excuse for an immigration system. Nobody wants to see a single one of those boats crossing, and that does need to come to an end. So on that, we absolutely agree. Um, I am opposed to the Rwanda scheme for three reasons. Number one, I don't think it's going to work. I don't think it really is going to meaningfully crack down on those small boats. Number two, I think it's cynical and gimmicky, and I think it's an excuse for the government not to address its asylum process. And number three, I don't think it's conservative. Um, I'm going to try to lay that out quickly, and I'm going to come back to some of those more technical points in a little bit. Um, but let's just address two immediate problems with with what Fraser said there. Australia's geography and the UK's are not the same. To act as if you can implement the same policy and see that successful in the UK with the channel as you are going to in a place like Australia, I think is I think is nonsense. Um, I'm not gonna use my opening remarks to decimate the Albanian argument. Um, Fraser's- You mean address it? I mean decimate we'll it. We'll have time um, for it. Fraser's abuse of statistics here oh, is really quite egregious, and I look forward to digging into those numbers. Um, but if you yeah, want, but if you want to, <laughs> if you want to see evidence that passing laws um, and uh, doesn't the passing laws that you're going to deport and the threat of deportation isn't going to stop the small boats. Look at what's happened this year. So the illegal, uh, the illegal migration bill received royal consent on the 20th of July. Uh, since then, we've had over 10,000 people cross the channel. 
And when you are willing to risk everything, somebody passing a law and threatening you with deportation is at the very bottom of the list of your concerns. Um, and I think that what's happening here is, is the obvious result of an asylum system that has been failing for decades now. This isn't simply the Conservative Party that's had to grapple with this. It's governments previous to it. Um, and you just have to look at what's happening currently and what's being proposed. The huge sums that it's going to cost to fly anybody out to Rwanda, £22,000 per person to put them on just the flight, is the current estimated cost um, to get somebody out of the country. Um, the, the egregious sums, the egregious attempt to put people on death trap barges just to show that you're doing something, I think shows how cynical and gimmicky this has become. But you can't laugh at it because these are people's lives that we're toying with. And, and that's where I come on to my third point about this not being very conservative. If any person of any ideology should understand what it means to try to create the best life for yourself possible, that's somebody on the right. Uh, we are the ones who embrace individualism. We are the ones who understand that drive to improve things for your family. We are the ones that understand that innate desire to make things better. And as I said at the start, the small boats crossings is by absolutely no means the way that we want people to go about this. But we should understand more than anybody why people would be uh, risking their lives uh, and risking everything to come here. And if we really cared about those people, and if this were really about stopping the people smuggling, we could do it tomorrow. We could create more safe and legal pathways to applying to come to the UK, and I look forward to digging into some of that. But for the government to put forward their Rwanda scheme without detailing what those safe and, safe and legal pathways are going to be, um, not only don't I trust it, I, I find it quite ironic from the Rishi Sunak government, um, following on from Liz Truss, was it not Rishi Sunak who was saying, well, if you want to do all these big things, Liz, you have to explain how you're going to get there. If you want to cut taxes, you've got to explain how you're going to restrain spending. Well, if you want to explain to me how you're going to be deeply conservative about this and how you're going to take care of those people that we that we desperately want to help, you need to tell me how they're going to come here by not getting in a small boat before you stick them on a flight to Rwanda. People who have faced all kinds of persecution, people who have you know, seen their life flash in front of their face, you're going to stick them on a flight and send them to Rwanda. In my opinion, that is simply not the conservative way. Thank you so much, Kate. And finally, Minister. Well, thank you. And I feel honored to be part of this panel to be Fraser's running mate this evening. Um, the first thing I'd say is that the 21st century is going to be characterized by mass migration. It's going to be one of the big themes of our generation, the shift in power to East and West, the rise of authoritarian regimes like China, millions of people being on the move because of climate change, persistent conflicts, rising living standards, enabling new middle classes in parts of the world to get on the move. And they want to come, understandably, to successful developed countries like our own, in search of better economic prospects. And so we, like other European and developed countries, have to get real about what is coming our way and put in place the processes and procedures and systems to defend our borders if we care about the nation state and the sovereignty of our borders. If we don't do that now, then we're going to find ourselves not in the situation we are confronted with today, but an immeasurably more difficult one in the years ahead. And you can see the numbers of people arriving in Lampedusa, the shift in politics in Europe to the right on immigration, the challenges on the southern border 
in the United States is just a foretaste of what is going to happen over the next 10, 20, 50 years. And what we are doing in this country is creating the most comprehensive plan of any country in Europe to tackle that issue. And that is why we get a very receptive ear when we travel internationally speaking to foreign leaders. Don't believe these people like uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury who say that the UK is out on a limb. Actually, when I speak to interior ministers and immigration ministers around Europe, they see the UK as a thought leader and they see the Rwanda policy as an important and novel concept, which if we can make it succeed, and I believe that we will, will be copied by other countries around the world. And why do we want to do this? It's not that this is the totality of our plan, as some people put up as a kind of straw man, that instead, like Keir Starmer, you should be trying to arrest your way out of this. We're doing all of those things. We're doubling the funding for our national crime agency. I've been in 10 countries this year trying to improve our diplomatic relations and strategic partnerships with everyone from Turkey to Algeria to Tunisia. We're doubling the fines on illegal workers, increasing the chances of a knock on the door if you run a nail bar or an illegal uh, construction site by 50% this year alone. We're increasing returns by 75% this year. We're reducing the backlog. But those things alone are not enough. And the people who tell you that they are I'm afraid, are either misleading you or are naive. We are dealing with not just the desires of millions of people to get on the move and come to this country, but some of the most evil people smugglers you can imagine. People who care nothing for human life or dignity will do anything for money and profit. And to take on those people, you have to have a robust policy. And the only countries in the world that have successfully tackled this issue have done robust but fair policies like Rwanda. Australia, it did succeed. But you don't have to look to Australia. Look to what we have done here in the last nine months with Albania. With the Albanian policy that the Prime Minister and Suella, the Home Secretary, created, we've seen a 92% reduction in the number of Albanians coming here illegally because people in Albania now know that they are very likely to be returned home. And I was in Tirana a couple of weeks ago, and at the airport, I saw young men who had only been in the UK for 48 hours and were now on the tarmac in Tirana being met by their mums and dads. Their journey to the UK had been a failure, and they were going to tell their friends and family not to do the same. The Rwanda policy is our opportunity to do that writ large. And as Fraser said, we're doing that not just to protect our own borders, but to protect those people from the cruelty of people smugglers. If you see the migrant journey, as I have, from North Africa to the UK, you see a trail of human misery. And we have a moral duty to fight that. And the Rwanda policy is our best option to do that. It creates, ultimately, the deterrent that you need to smash the people smuggling gangs, to restore sovereignty, and integrity to our borders. Thank you so much. Now, before we go ahead into the proper debate, I wanted to just get a show of hands just to get a sense of the room of people who are on Fraser and Robert's side in terms of pro-Rwanda and people who you know, find what Kate's saying is a bit more appealing, just so that we can know where we start and where we end uh, after... Well, midway through. 
Well, well, no, but we, we've now heard the opening pictures, so in case you weren't sure. But at the end, I'd like also to do a show of hands to see if anyone's changed their mind. So if you're pro-Rwanda, can you put your hands up now? Okay, and if you're anti? Okay, so Kate, it's uphill battle for you. <laughs> um, and any don't knows? Okay, one, two, one, two, one person, cross, two. Cross-section of public opinion here. <laughs> yes, yeah, Qu- quite a selective sample, I would say. <laughs> Probably is roughly where the country's at, yeah. Yeah, well, actually, you know what... The polls show is more like, what, 55, 40 or something? I think one poll showed that there wasn't a majority of people supporting Rwanda, but twice as many people support Rwanda than are anti it. That's right. So maybe, Kate, we can start with that, actually, which is that if this is what the people want, that's surely the democratic thing to do, rather than give these, as Sorella Braverman calls them, (laughs) lefty lawyers... Mm-hmm. the way forward in, in doing something like this. So I think something we can also agree upon is that, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily want um, this to be played out in the courts and certainly not in any court that isn't in the UK. My argument has nothing to do really with who should be making this decision. I want the government to make this decision. I want them to put it into law and I, 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 I want future governments to be able to change things as they see fit. That is, that is the fairest way to do this by democratic consent. So I'm not I'm not making any argument on that front, um, a government that wins a mandate, you know, they do. But people want lots of things. Um, people, people would like to spend a lot more money in this country. People have tried to spend a lot more money in this country. We saw where that got us. It is odd to me that a government that has made its new slogan about long-term decision makings for the future, and that has made its argument around taking those tough decisions and telling people the truth, um, is also one that would then go and say, well, this is what people want. We simply have to serve it up. I thought that every other aspect of this government was, no, 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 we're going we're gonna to talk about those tough truths. And the tough truth is that this scheme isn't going to work. Um, it's not going to work because if you are desperate enough to give a people smuggler uh, thousands and thousands of pounds, 4,000 pounds on average, but it can be 10,000 pounds, um, if you're willing to risk your entire life savings and your life to come here, what the government might do afterwards uh, is, uh, is, is going to be at the bottom of your list. I can't wait to destroy the Albanian statistics. Is this the moment, Cindy, or do you want me to come back to that? Go on. Okay, yep, go on. Great. <laughs> there's lies, there's damn lies, and there's statistics. Um, so between 2018 and now, quarterly data for Albanian migrants has roughly been the same. It averages between about 70 to 300 people a quarter. We had a blip last year where these numbers surged, and people are still trying to figure out why, but a, a lot of the argument around that is that there were briefings that the UK might do a deal with Albania in terms of trying to return people, and, and uh, so we saw, w- whether that's true or not, we saw a surge in migrants. And you're going to keep hearing this 92% figure, and in fact, from, from Robert and Fraser's comments, it is the argument that they're resting on. This is uh, proof that... Australia, Norway. Um, okay, again... Australia, to pretend that the geography is the same, I think is a stretch. But I think, but, but both of you have really honed in on the fact that Albania proved. You are, are you disputing that Al- Albania? Are you saying Albania doesn't prove that this is going to work? Albania, Australia, Norway. Okay. Uh, and by the way, also the complete absence of any other successful mechanism of handling this problem. So if we want to talk about the success rate, you're going to keep hearing this 92% figure that after Rishi Sunak made this deal, uh, the number of people coming over on small boats dropped by 92%. Here's what they're not telling you. In Q3 of last year, between Q3 and Q4, we were already seeing a huge overcorrection to the number of people coming. Between Q3 and Q4, before a deal was struck, the number dropped by 84%. 
Okay, it dropped from about 9,200 down to 1,400. And then Rishi Sunak signs the deal, and that's where they get this 92% figure from, because it dropped from 1,400 down to 87, and then you've got your 92% decrease. But if you really want to talk about statistics, if you really want to play the percentages game, of course it's gone up. Between Q1 and Q2 this year, it's risen by 90%. And it's about 160 people in the last hold quarter. Hold on. This is thousands but, before. No, 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 no. But this is, this is exactly my point. You were talking about a decrease that is actually very small to get to that 92%. I'm talking about an increase. No, wait, hold on. Okay, hold I, on. I, I'm talking about. Let me come in after you. No, you I, I, I'm happy to. I'm talking about an increase that's quite small that gets me 90%. And we don't have the Q3 figures yet, but that will be summertime. That will be at the height of the migration season in, 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 across the channel. And let's, let's be conservative here. Let's say it's a small number. Let's say it rises from 165 to 500. That would be a 200% increase. The point I'm making here is that the huge fall we saw was not after Rishi Sunak signed that deal. It was before. It's returned to normal levels, not, not low levels, normal levels that we've had since 2018. And they're banding about numbers to sh to, that are hugely selective in really small numbers if you actually break them down. And I can do the exact same thing on the other side, which is to say that that deal made no difference. That deal made no difference. The numbers were the same before, they're the same now. They didn't actually address that blip, which corrected itself. And for anybody to say that that scheme proves that this works is cherry picking in a way that I think is quite disingenuous and a way that Fraser never did during COVID. I, in fact, remember you being very particular about percentages during that time. So I don't think we should be picking and choosing now. Over to you guys. I don't know which of them one. Well, well, can, well can, can, I I, can I come in with some well, of the statistics? Before Robert goes, right? That's not true. But in the time case being sweeting, I, uh, talking, I've actually just taken a picture of the Albanian figures and tweeted <laughs> it out. So anyone who follows me on Twitter can see the pref, which <laughs> proves that she was talking rot. Robert. Yeah. Uh, just to be clear, I, I got my numbers from the Spectator Data Hub and confirmed it with our data editor this morning, so, so I'm pretty sure it's correct. You see yep. the red at the bottom? These are all these small boat arrivals, right? You'll see at the bottom, on red, we've got Albanians. You'll see a few of the were, and they went into a blip, you're right. But have a look at the her so-called 90% increase. Can you see that at the end? No, it doesn't exist. And um, it, so does, it does exist wait, in wait, terms wait, of your own percentages. Agreed, Kate. This is what we're talking about. Yeah. So I'm not quite sure there's been just uh, just to be clear on that graph would please keep holding it up the huge the huge the huge dip you see in the red is before Rishi Sunak signs his deal right that's before he signs his deal because they knew it was coming and then it's no it's it, there's the, the the influx the reason people started coming over is mainly attributed to the fact that they thought it was coming but if you look if you go all the way back Albanian migration has been roughly the same, i.e. extremely small via small boats, between 2018 and now. There was a blip when people thought that might be their last chance. It's gone back to normal levels now. I think one boat crossing is too many, but it was correcting itself before the deal. And if you want to talk about 92% decreases, you have to talk about 90% increases and potentially 500% increases when we get the Q3 figures, or you're not being, or you're cherry picking. And personally, I think the whole thing is disingenuous. The truth is that deal did nothing. Robert. Minister. Well, as a Home Office minister, um, I'm used to the Home Office getting a lot of criticism. But the, the one thing that no one has ever criticised uh, in recent times, at least, is the success of the Albanian deal. Because all bar Kate, <laughs> all bar Kate agree that this has been a huge success. Last year, 30% of all those people who came across on small boats came from Albania. Today... 
that is 3%. It has led to a 92% reduction. And Kate is, Kate's correct to say that Albanians didn't used to be a, a significant contributor to illegal migration, but these things always fluctuate. That's the nature of illegal migration. But what we have seen is that this summer, the numbers have completely fallen off a cliff. And I don't know, if Kate, you've been to Albania, but I, I could tell you that I have been there. I've spoken to young people there, and they know that the things that were drawing them to the UK are fundamentally different today because there is a realistic prospect of being removed, and not removed in weeks or months or years, but literally within 48 hours, there are young people who are now back home in Tirana. That's what we want to establish with the Rwanda policy. And, you know, it is a novel policy, Rwanda. You know, it's, there are precedents. We, there are things we can look to, like Albania, like Australia, like Norway. But it's also just logic. Would you pay a people smuggler thousands of pounds to get into a boat in the sure knowledge that when you arrive at Western Jetfoil on the south coast of the UK, you will immediately be detained and short of a tiny number of people who can make a suspensive claim, you'll either be sent straight home to a safe country where you came from, like Albania, or you'll be sent to Rwanda, where your claim will be heard. I, I, I'm willing to put a bet in, Kate, that the numbers of people will fall dramatically, because not just precedent and examples, the ones we've given you, but logic dictates that sensible, rational people will not do that. They will stay in a place of safety, like France, and they will pursue their aspirations in Germany or France or other European countries. Minister, can I try a different approach here, just to move on slightly from Albania, which is just that uh, the people who, are coming, who were coming from Albania last year, overwhelmingly they were young men looking for a better way, uh, way standard of living, so economic migrants. Mm -hmm. What about the argument that actually when you put in something like Rwanda, like the Illegal Migration Act, where anyone who comes over illegally is deported to, my, uh, to Rwanda, that there will be genuine refugees in there, people who, um, for whom the pull factor is not as strong as the push factor of persecution at home? So I guess the question is twofold. A, you might deter the Albanians who want to get a higher salary, but you won't deter the Eritreans who are escaping civil war. Or B, um, that... Yeah, those people, we have a moral duty to them, and that Rwanda is too heavy, too blunt an instrument to turn all those people away without even hearing them out first. Mm. Well, I suppose the first thing to say is that almost everyone who gets into a small boat, uh, in fact, everyone in the last year, has set off from France, which is a safe European country with a well-functioning asylum system. And they have generally traveled through many other safe European countries to come to that point. And I think it's perfectly reasonable for the UK to say that you should be claiming asylum in the first safe country that you arrive in, which you know, was one of the original principles in the Refugee Convention, which does speak to people coming directly. It doesn't uh, envisage that people will be able to travel across whole continents and then claim asylum in the UK. But the second thing is that the consequence of us taking so many people into the UK in this irregular, illegal manner has been to place immense strain on the UK in terms of housing supply, as you see with people being housed in hotels and 
barges and all the things Kate doesn't like. Um, although, incidentally, the barge is not an inhumane way to house people. This is a barge that was good enough for armed forces personnel, oil and gas workers, key workers in Singapore before it came here. So it, it, are are, are the illegal immigrants migrants. still on the barge right now? Well, I hope they'll be on. Oh, they're not on the barge. Why aren't they on the barge? <laughs> Well, because we took a safety-first approach. Because it was a death trap. It was a, was a plague-ridden barge, which people had to be taken off. They're not on it right now. This is a, this is a, a jocular event, but that is, that is a completely inappropriate thing to say. It was not I don't a, think it, it is. You had to trap. evacuate them because okay. it was so dangerous. The alternative that you're positing is that we continue to house people in hotels, costing millions of pounds a day. And I do not think that anyone in this country wants to see hundreds of hotels used, costing billions of pounds a year. But, but, but back to the, the broader point that I was making, the, the best way for the UK to live up to its international obligations and to be a shining light, a compassionate country that's respected around the world, is not to take young men from France and spend thousands of pounds housing them in hotels. It is to resettle people on programs of which we are already a world leader, like the Ukrainian, the Hong Kong, the Syrian, the, Hong Kong, the, the Afghan scheme, or to give money upstream to people who are in genuine need in refugee camps, as we have done through our overseas development aid. Instead of spending millions of pounds on hotels, Let's help millions of people through our overseas development aid in the places where it's really needed, in places like uh, Syria, in Sudan, in the conflict zones and perilous places in the world. That is how the UK actually makes a difference in the world today, not privileging a small number of young men who happen to have got across at the behest of people smugglers to the UK. I'd like to um, make another, a, a couple of, again, factual points to Kate's thing. Uh, she, Kate is saying, again, like, if somebody wants to risk death to come to the country, wh why do we think they're going to be realistically deterred? Now, the simple truth is that the people smugglers are now, the, the line between somebody's refugee and somebody's an economic migrant is becoming blurry. They are literally all in, in, in the same boat. And um, I am increasingly thinking that this binary distinction which the Human Rights Convention puts on them doesn't really reflect the reality of today's, uh, today's world. I wouldn't say that I've got less uh, sympathy from some, for somebody fleeing destitution and poverty than I have for somebody fleeing conflict. Uh, but the, the, the point is that they, but fundamentally, if they're paying 5, 10, 15 grand to a people smuggler, they need to think there's going to be a realistic chance of success. And I think they would simply choose another country mm -hmm. if they thought there was not even a certainty, but even a 30% chance. Now, I once spoke to Norway's immigration minister who was doing this, she, she, uh, to ask her the question you were asking earlier on. It costs so much, because by the way, they were deporting people. It costs so much money, I was saying. Um, used thousands of pounds per person. Is that really the best use of money? And she made two very good points. First of all, that that money is well worth it if it means that fewer people are going to be dying on the way to Norway. And that secondly, for the price of helping one person in Norway, you could help something like 15, 20, 25 people in an overseas camp. Mm -hmm. So we are, is it more? more? Whatever the ratio was, but you get the overall idea. Now, right now, there are 35 million refugees out there. 
1952 convention was addressed to stop, prevent a repeat of a 1930s problem. What's happening now is that third world isn't so poor anymore. People have got more resources to make the journey, and they make the absolutely understandable journey, the journey that my ancestors made when they went off to, um, to, to create America, pretty much. You know, the United States is created by the dreams and the determination of people who risked death in that crossing, because in the early days, you did risk death making that crossing. So there is no... There's no sort of, it's one of the most powerful forces of human nature to seek a better life for yourself and your children. But when you've got 35 million people in there, you've got to ask yourself, what are our moral responsibilities as a rich country to help as many of these guys as we can? Mm -hmm. Now, the answer is not to accommodate them here. That would help a far smaller number than it would if you were to help them in that camps. And I think that the UK is now pretty much number one in Europe for giving help to people in these camps closer to their conflict so they can realistically get home and settle again. So when you're looking at this, and it's, you know, of course, it's very difficult to, to see this human suffering as a sort of any kind of moral economy. But if you're asking, how can we do the greatest good? How can we discharge our responsibility as a rich country in the best way? I would say that you would invest in deportation, you would close down the people smuggling route. And I would do something else that you probably wouldn't agree with me here, Robert. For every one person that we deport to Rwanda, I would take in two, perhaps three people from the camps where we have got legitimate asylum seekers. We're not talking predominantly single young men, which they come in the small boats. We're talking the, the families. I would take two or three of them into Britain, genuine asylum seekers whose case has been proved before they come here. So I would, broadly speaking, I, I think Britain should take our fair share, more than our fair share. I'd like us to take more than the European per capita average of asylum seekers. It's a question of how they come here. And I would be in favor of closing down the illegal route and taking more people from the camps who have been assessed by the people who are doing incredible work in DFID for and war zones. And that's, to me, again, it sounds strange to regard this as an economics, but if you care about making the maximum impact, you simply have to do these kind of calculations. And one final thing, I don't like the Rwanda scheme. It gives me the creeps. I absolutely hate to think of people coming to this country being sent down to Africa rather than when they wanted to come to Britain. But we are talking about, uh, about a choice here. What else, well, something that I hate more than the Rwanda scheme is the idea of 2,500 people dying in the Mediterranean, many of whom will be en route to Britain. That's the, that is the greater evil here. And unfortunately, we're in the world where we need to identify the greatest evil in order to do the greatest amount of good. Um, so if, and I'm not sure, I'm, I'm not sure, uh, this totally adds up for me, but if I am the only person to uh, criticize the arguments around Albanian migrants, I think that's because the data has not been made widely available, and I'm grateful to the Spectator Data Hub that we have. Anybody who reads that graph, anybody who sees that breakdown, knows that it hasn't worked, that the narrative is completely false. And I, I think people on average are really quite smart, and they can see that for themselves, and I would encourage everybody to check that out. Um, Robert says he, he doesn't think the numbers, sorry, Robert's Robert bets me that the numbers will fall quite dramatically uh, once Rwanda gets off the ground. Um, I don't think they will, and I think the evidence is, is already starting um, even before the planes take off. Um, since that bill had royal assent, it is now the government's legal obligation to deport every person who arrives here illegally, and about half the people who have come over on small boats have done so since that royal assent. So um, whether that's because they just don't think the UK government can do it, whether that's because, in my opinion, I think it's a combination of both, they are still willing to risk their lives. Um, my suspicion is those people are going to keep coming. Um, 
I'm not going to apologize for calling that barge a death trap. I think it's really important that we understand exactly what's being done in the name of politics at the moment. Um, we pe put people on a barge, insisted that these people go onto a barge, only to take them off because the conditions were truly inhumane and dangerous to their lives, um, so that we could show that we were doing something. And, and, and this frustrates me when we, talk, when we talk about that barge, when we talk about, in Robert's words, the irregular, illegal manner of illegal immigration, when we're talking about housing people in hotels. It's as if the government is saying, well, these things are just happening to us. And we can't do anything about it. And so the obvious default is to put people on a plane to Rwanda and house them there instead. Um, we could do something tomorrow. We could create genuine legal pathways. If we disdain the people smugglers as much as Robert and Fraser and I all say, we could kill that industry tomorrow. We're choosing not to do it. And you can say, you can make all kinds of arguments as to why. You can say it wouldn't be popular. You could say the public wouldn't like it. You could say that our polls might move in the wrong direction. But if we wanted to do it, we could, which is, which is where my real frustration comes in, because I don't think that this is... That, that this is the most humane argument. Rwanda certainly not. We are going to end up deporting people who have faced the most horrible things in their lives that we can't even begin to imagine. And we're going to deny them any opportunity to ever have a legal pathway to come to the UK and to become a UK resident or a citizen. We are going to say to people who are genuine refugees, truly persecuted, that they're not going to come here. And the irony is that we're going to say it's because you came here illegally, but there were no safe pathways for them to come. Approximately 550,000 people were offered a route to the UK in the last eight years. Not in the last year, in the last eight years. And that overwhelmingly, those are Ukrainians and uh, BNO visas that were issued. Uh, we have 50,000 people resettled or relocated over eight years. And that includes Afghans, when you think about that. 45,000 people reunified with their family over eight years. There is no safe or legal pathway unless you are one of a handful of nationalities. So we are saying on the one hand, you can, you, if you are a genuine refugee to claim asylum, you have to come here legally, legally. Otherwise, we're kicking you out to Rwanda and you're never coming back. But by the way, we're not going to offer you that safe and legal pathway. And Robert listed all the many things the government is doing to crack down on illegal immigration. He said this is not just Rwanda, it's a multi-pronged approach. I didn't hear in that list at any point safe and legal pathways. Uh, and, and until I hear that, it's going to be very, very difficult to sign on to any such scheme that puts people on a plane, people who have genuinely been persecuted, and tell them, no, you're wrong, you've broken the law, and you can never come back. Well, Cindy, is, can, can I address this? Because I think yeah, this, this is second, Robert, I'll just come to you quickly, but, but I just want to say that Fraser and Kay are actually agreeing on this point, which I think is quite incredible no, about no, safe, no, she, safe routes. <laughs> oh, okay, sorry. Kate is agreeing with you, Fraser, um, about the importance of safe routes. But, Robert, it seems like you're, the government is not talking about safe routes. Well, I think the, the first thing to say on this is Kate rather oddly dismisses the fact that the UK has issued... 530,000 humanitarian visas since 2015. That is more people coming to the UK on humanitarian grounds than at any period in our history. More than during the Second World War, more than in the 1930s, when we could and should have done more to help people fleeing Nazism. That is half a million people. And they're not just coming from Ukraine, 
uh, or Hong Kong, important though that is. They're also coming from Syria, from Afghanistan, a community sponsorship scheme, which means that, frankly, any one of us could go with our church or synagogue or mosque or organization and help somebody to come to the UK if we so wished. They're coming on a global scheme where we give money to the United Nations. We are second only to Sweden in Europe for the number of people who've come here on humanitarian grounds, on resettlement schemes. So we should be immensely proud. The UK is not a mean country. This conservative government has helped far more people to come here on humanitarian grounds than any previous government, certainly far more than the last Labour government. But the second thing is we have to be honest with ourselves about our capacity. We simply do not have infinite capacity. And it's all very well if you're in Parliament and you can virtue signal. But I see people in this audience who are local council leaders who are trying to actually house people, to find them GP appointments, to get their kids into school, to integrate them into British society. And in the last nine months, I've spoken to more people probably than anybody in politics about this issue. And I've had this very same MPs who have been saying, oh, we must have more safe and legal routes, phoning me up and saying, Robert, I, I hear you're taking a hotel in my constituency. You, you can't do that. That's outrageous. We don't want the migrants in our, in our community. Let's be honest about the capacity that we actually have as a country. And that gets me to the final point, which is that I don't want this to be the decision of the people smugglers. I want we, the government and parliament, to make this decision grounded in reality. And that's why we are doing more safe and legal routes. We've just passed an act which explicitly creates more, but says that we're not going to virtue signal will only create the number of places that local councils actually are able to offer. So in a few weeks' time, we're going to consult local authorities and ask them, how many people can you take in your community? And I won't be offended if those council leaders come back and say, we would love to take people. But we simply can't right now because there is no housing for those people. That would just be honesty in this debate for once. Actually, the, the last point I'll make, sorry to make a further one, is I do fundamentally reject this argument that if you create more safe and legal routes, that will stop the people smugglers. There is no evidence for that. If that were true, why has small boat crossings increased in the very period in which we as a country have been more generous than any time in our modern history? We've taken more people on safe and legal routes in recent years, just as the number of people coming across illegally has increased. In the United States, Biden, you may have noticed, has offered vast amounts of visas to people from South American countries to try to reduce illegal migration on the southern border. Did it work? No. It, as well as all the people who he was giving the visas to, you've seen a further massive increase in people coming across uh, the southern border. The people coming across in small boats are not the people who we would help if we created safe and legal routes. I want to create safe and legal routes to help vulnerable people, to help families from refugee camps. I don't want to create them to help a young man who is fit and able and sat today in France to come to the United Kingdom. It doesn't seem to me to be anything fair or moral or compassionate about that. I'm afraid that this is a naivety in the argument. There's an argument to do more safe and legal routes because we want to do that as a country, but we shouldn't lull ourselves into the belief that that's going to reduce the number of people coming across illegally. That's not the way it works. 
the people smugglers will keep on trying their luck until you create a policy in Rwanda. Robert is certainly correct that some people avoid politics to virtue, to virtue signal. I avoid politics to say it like it is. And unfortunately, the UK is not as generous as I think Robert makes out there. Um, on a per capita basis, certainly not. Uh, in Last year, there were 13 asylum applications for every 10,000 people in the UK. There were 22 uh, uh, across the uh, EU 27. Um, we are actually very disappointing when it comes to uh, the applications that we're processing. Um, I don't think eight years, I don't think 550,000 applications over eight years is terribly impressive when you consider um, that if you take Ukraine and BNO visas out of that, you're talking around 100,000 tops. Um, you mention that there's no example of uh, safe and legal routes to the UK reducing how people might try to come. I would argue we're seeing that play out right now. Now, I agree that an economic migrant and an asylum seeker are not the same. Um, but we have seen a huge influx of people trying to come here because they want to escape poverty since the UK ended uh, its safe and legal pathways for low-skilled migrants to come and work here. Now, I'm not making a comment about that. That was a post-Brexit decision, and uh, based on the referendum, I understand why it was made. But uh, you ask why more people are trying to come. You ask why at 1.2% of Albanian men were trying to come to the UK last year. Well, they had no safe and legal pathway as they did pre-Brexit. Again, not making a comment on that, but there's your evidence. Um, I find it interesting that the government keeps using examples of its failed systems to point out why we need Rwanda. It is outrageous. It's outrageous that we're hosting asylum seekers in hotels for who knows how long, certainly more than six months. The fact that since 2010, that wait list has risen from under 10,000 to 175,000 shows the extent to which the entire asylum system has broken down. It's, it's awful. I agree with you, Robert. It's awful. I think the government should fix it. I don't think anybody should be waiting more than six months for their answer. I don't think we should be hosting people in hotels for a year because the gov government can't get its asylum system in order. Um, I don't think this country has a proper system for processing asylum seekers anymore. It is completely broken down, and it's trying to outsource this problem, and it's trying to pass the buck. Um, and given the fact that I don't think it has been as generous as Robert says, um, I think this is in, you know, even more disappointing. A conservative government that understands why persecuted people might want to come here should care very much about getting its house in order, figuring out how to process those people. Uh, the Refugee Council published a report today, which found that according to home office statistics, three in every four people crossing the channel right now would qualify for refugee status. I think to say we're going to put them on a plane rather than actually improve our processes, process them, and get them into the UK and get them working and get them contributing, it's just the wrong balance of priorities in my opinion. Okay, I'd like to go to some audience contribution now. Um, now, normally I ask for these ones to ending a question mark, but actually for this for debate, I think it's okay for it to end in a full stop. But <laughs> please, can we keep it brief? So no more than three sentences, if possible. And also, it'd be nice if we touch on some of the things that we haven't touched on on the panel itself. So some, um, some things that you think, you know, that we haven't had a chance to talk about. It's such a complicated issue. Um, yes, that gentleman in the orange tie. Do we need a microphone? Yeah. So do we, I just, 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 yeah. Thank you. <laughs>
just to point out that the, there hasn't really been a, any, any uh, differences in the amount of migration that's come over from Albania. There's still been a constant flow of people coming over here legally, but the amount of illegal migration, obviously rockets in, and there's a reason behind that, because there's, there's, uh, there are uh, clear jobs for people to come here unidentified. You know, there are jobs in the uh, criminal fraternity, which they've been blocking here to, to fill. Right, so if anyone at the back didn't hear the question, well, the statement was that there are still legal migration is the same level from Albania as well. Um, should, we, should we take another one? Because there's going to be a lot. Yeah, is that gentleman with the hand up? Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm heartened by government's progress, disappointed at how fast it's coming. Um, it strikes me that safe and legal routes would be like stopping the Titanic sinking by putting another hole in the boat. Um, but I'm wondering... Asylum seekers don't come on a cruise. They don't book a boat ride because it's pleasant. They book a ride to come to the UK for a better life, and I understand that. And we do have a duty. I think we're the most compassionate people in the, in the, on Earth. But those that come that have no right to come or those that come that are illegal need to be processed faster, and the Home Office is negligent and delinquent in not processing applications fast enough. And actually, if we don't solve that problem... These people, some of them have been sitting in camps, for so, sorry, in, in hotels for so long. Why did they come? If they're going to be sitting in a hotel and not able to participate, why isn't that a deterrent? So I hope it works, the Randall scheme works genuinely, but I am worried that all we'll do is create, uh, we won't stop any of the pull, we'll just open the door to people running up the beach and entering the black economy. Thank you. Thank you very much. Can I just turn on my graphs here? Um, the, um, right. <laughs> the blue is number of asylum seekers waiting less than six months. The red is those waiting six months or more for a decision. It's absolutely shocking. 175,000 people. If you imagine that in terms of like a town. Uh, so you, you, you're right, sir. This has just been a, a calamity for everybody involved. For people who, by the way, whose claim is genuine, and they're, 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 they're banned from working, they can't support themselves. It is something... Uh, and obviously, Minister, this will frustrate you every much as it frustrates um, the, the guy who asked the question. But do, do you have a, but why? I mean, is there nothing we can do? Is there, can't we get some 24-hour court systems? Is there nothing we can do to, to, to relieve these guys from the purgatory that we're keeping them in now at such vast expense? I imagine most of a different budget now is spent accommodating asylum seekers in Britain. Yeah. Well, I share your frustration. In, in fairness, from 2010 until COVID, the backlog was under about 30,000, and then it started to rise. And a lot of that was down to the fact that the Home Office insisted, quite rightly, on face-to-face -face appointments so that you could interview somebody, you know, interrogate their story, make sure that they're a credible asylum seeker. And that was one of the reasons why it started to increase. But I'm, I'm not here to defend that. I mean, since Rishi became Prime Minister, Suella became Home Secretary, and I came into this role, we all set out to fix this problem. <laughs> And I, I'm pleased to say that I think we are fixing it now. The latest data which is being published is showing that productivity is back to where it should be. I think at the beginning of the summer, about 1,000 decisions were being made. By August, that was 3,000 a week. That was 3,000, I think, by uh, the end of August, beginning of September. It's now about 3,500. It's rising very rapidly. And so, and that hasn't been done, incidentally, in the way that John Reid and the Labour Party did it through an asylum, um, um, you know, an amnesty. It's been done through good 
old-fashioned conservative principles of management processes, getting people working, as Fraser said, seven days a week, ensuring there are proper targets on everybody in the service. And so I'm very confident that by the end of the year, we will have got the legacy backlog right down and the sort of service standard, if you like, will be something that is sustainable, fair to the individuals, but above all fair to the taxpayer. I, I wouldn't, I'd just be careful not to uh, fall into the sort of Labour Party's uh, narrative that fixing the backlog is a strategy in and of itself to stop the boats. It's the right thing to do because we as Conservatives care about running public services and government processes efficiently, but it's not going to stop the boats. You know, that's why you need a deterrent like Rwanda to actually deter people from coming in the first place. I'd also be aware of those people who think that granting somebody asylum and leaving a hotel is the end of the story. If somebody's granted asylum, if they're a family, they'll go to your local council and in most cases ask for housing. If they're a single male, they may pose a challenge to rough sleeping and homelessness, something that I spent three years as housing secretary fighting to try to eradicate. These are people who invariably don't speak English, who are invariably low-skilled, and who will take a great deal of effort from all parts of government, of the state, to support, to integrate, and to help them to lead successful lives. So the cost might leave the books of the Home Office, but it doesn't leave the books of you as taxpayers. In fact, it will transfer, in many cases, to your local council. So if you want to have very large numbers of people coming in as asylum seekers, just be aware of the enormous cost of that. And to Fraser's point earlier, the infinitely greater good we could do as a country by spending that money upstream, supporting people in great need in refugee camps, in places of poverty and war elsewhere in the world. Kate, do you want to? Um, to, the, to the point made about jobs, um, I'm going to make a slightly different point, but we haven't really addressed the labor market. Um, it is the oddest time possibly in, well, certainly in recent UK history, to be demanding that we have fewer people. Uh, there are labor market vacancies that are close to a million right now. We've just dropped under a million, but post-COVID, we are struggling so much to fill them. That is contributing to the inflation spiral. I know Fraser used to argue that we should give asylum seekers uh, who haven't had their status approved the right to work. I'm curious as to whether or not he still agrees with that. He can let us know. Yeah, great, great, good. Well, they're going to be in Rwanda, so I'm not quite sure where you think they're... So they're gonna you would say that uh, asylum seekers can work from when? From six months in or, or immediately? Because at the moment, they can't work for the first 12 months. I didn't have a problem with asylum seekers. It, look, for, by the way, uh, obviously I would do the system very differently. <laughs> but, for, but for those who are detained, um, I would say after a certain period of time, maybe after sort of two or three months, um, they're, they're, they're given the right to support their family. I think it's pretty cruel and expensive um, forcing them to live on benefits. These are some of the most industrious people in, in, in the world. I agree. How are they going to do that and contribute to our services industry when they're in Rwanda? <laughs> this isn't about contributing to the services industry. This is about them supporting themselves. Wait, how are they going to do that in Rwanda? I wouldn't have a... I, I, I would not ban them from working in Rwanda, if that's what you're asking. No, I'm asking if you... I'm saying... <laughs> Fraser, I, I feel like it was it was a very interesting pause we just got there, where I, I, it was almost as if you were going to start to backtrack. You're, you support asylum seekers coming to the UK. To, oh, okay, we're giving up. 
So just to clarify your position, you support asylum seekers being able to work while they're in the UK, but you also support putting them on a plane to Rwanda. I don't know how that will address our labour market issues, but I think it's an... It's not intended to address the labour market. This is, this is about maximising fairness to asylum seekers, maximising a moral responsibility to the world. Absolutely. So uh, let them work in the UK. Um, I also think that that point made uh, by Robert about uh, the demands that we'll, we'll face um, if we have more asylum seekers here on housing, on schools, on council support. It's always the public sector, isn't it? It's always the state. You don't hear any private company complaining about increased demand. It's always a thing that the government controls, whether that be through the Town and Country Planning Act, whether it be through the education budget. The state cannot keep up, and, and, and asylum seekers are the tiniest, tiniest sliver of that. I mean, we need a million new homes in the UK yesterday, regardless of whether or not we have one additional asylum seeker. And when Robert was housing secretary, I mean, you're brilliant on this. Um, you know, I think there is a, a an understanding that we we need so much more infrastructure. We all know we have the space to do it. I just don't think we should change that opinion once we're talking about migrants. Robert, should we be building more houses? I well, mean, that's Kate, the <laughs> Kate and I are old comrades in arms on, on housing, uh, but I don't think you can make the argument that we have a housing crisis with a chronic lack of housing, particularly for the young and the poorest in society, and then just blithely say, well, let's welcome in 100,000 uh, small boats people in the last couple of years. Inevitably, where are those people going to live? Okay. You have to house them. And, They're you know, the tiniest fraction of the people we need to house. These, we, are, these are very, well, true, the scale of the challenge is great, but why make it worse? The argument applies to both groups, I think. You know, it, well, if you, if you meet a, a family that's come across on a small boat, you know, of course you want to care for them compassionately, but inevitably that means everyone that you see, a local council somewhere in this country is going to have to find them a home which currently isn't available and is going to take the home of somebody else probably in the poorest in society who are queuing up for that property. Minister, um, so let's just have an honest debate about the trade-offs. Yeah. Yeah. And on, just on unemployment, there's enough pull factors to, this UK, to the UK already without saying that somebody who is probably an economic migrant can come here and work as soon as they arrive okay. in the UK. Three-fourths of the small boats... Don't allow them to work. Can as we can we are. take some more audience? I'm so sorry, Kate. Can we take some more audience questions um, or statements? But let's um, let's take three more and keep them brief, please. Um, this gentleman here has been dying to speak for a while. Thank you. I wanted to take the opportunity to correct a misunderstanding of the Australian policy. <laughs> <laughs> My name is George Brandis. I was a member of Tony Abbott's cabinet, and I was one of the authors of the Australian policy. And when we introduced that policy, almost exactly 10 years ago, we heard each of the points that Kate Andrews had made. We were told that it was a gimmick. Obviously, it wasn't. We were told it would never work. Obviously, it did. We were told that it was contrary to the principles of our party because it was inhumane. The way to stop the drownings is to stop the boats. The way to stop the boats is to smash the people smugglers. The way to smash the people smugglers is to deprive them of a product to sell. That is a migration outcome. Now, can I address specifically one point, Kate, that you made? And that is that the Australian, the successful Australian precedent is not applicable to the United Kingdom or instructive as a precedent 
because of geographical differences. Mm. It is certainly the case that there are profound geographical differences between the Australian position and the UK position. But for that very reason, the Australian government had more options than the UK government has. We could, for example, execute boat turnbacks on international waters near the Indonesian um, maritime border. You can't do that. But I would submit to you that that makes it even more important that the Rwanda uh, policy succeed because you have fewer options to convey that message to the people smugglers to smash their business. So you've got to make that option work. Okay, let's... Thank you very much. Let's take the lady in the um, blush jacket. Very nice. <laughs> Thank you. Um, one of the things you men mentioned is about the labour market and um, a million vacancies. Well, actually, there's also um, a million people who could work aren't working, who are on out-of-work benefits. So actually the question is how can we enable our own people to take those jobs? Um, but also I wanted to hear your views on the human rights activists who are training people on how to get through our system and giving away free crucifixes. Let's take one more. Uh, yeah, this gentleman, have you, have you had a question? No. You have had a question? No, okay. <laughs> um, uh, my question is for Mr. Jenrick. Um, your policy seems to rest on safe and, safe and legal routes. The ones that exist at the minute is, is Ukraine, uh, where we've taken a lot. Europe has an open-door policy. There's Hong Kong, where there are people who have rights through BNO passports, and Afghanistan, which is barely functioning. But what are the... Sa you, you said you passed legislation that will mean safe and legal routes. Can you give us countries, dates, where what safe and legal routes are coming, even regions. Great. Who wants to start? Take any of them. Well, let me answer that. Firstly, our policy doesn't rest on safe and legal routes. Our policy is to do absolutely everything we possibly can to create a deterrent effect to stop people getting into the UK. But we do take our responsibility seriously to, to have safe and legal routes. That's why we've done more than any other country in Sweden in Europe in recent years. And we do have them, as you say, for... Uh, Hong Kong, for Syria, for Afghanistan, uh, for Ukraine. We have a global scheme, which the UN operate, that operates in multiple countries. And we also have the community uh, sponsorship scheme that means you, sir, if you care passionately about this, could go home tonight and speak to you know, your local religious group or community organization, band together, get a small amount of money together and come to the home office and we'd allow you to bring somebody into the UK to support. So, you know, this is on everyone. If you want to do this, you can. But we think ultimately there's a limit to what the state can do. And we can't support people from every part of the world. I don't agree with the argument that the UK has the capacity or indeed the obligation to allow every single person in any country in the world, a safe and legal route here. It is right that we appreciate the limits of our capacity and that we focus our support on those countries where we have the greatest geographical, historical, or moral obligation. That's what we've done in recent years. That's what we'll do in the future. Sorry, you, you haven't mentioned a single new route in that. that the question is new routes. 
Well, I have. I said we have a global scheme that's run by the United Nations on our behalf. They choose the individuals to be resettled in the UK. And we are asking every single local authority in the country this autumn, how many people do you think that you could support so that those people are properly housed and supported and integrated into British society? I want local authorities to give us honest answers to that. If it's a large number, we'll try to help that number of people into the country. If it's a small number, then that will just be a product of the fact there aren't enough houses, local authorities don't have the capacity. So let's, let's have an honest debate about what we're able to do as a country. Fraser. Um, on the point about, um, my, uh, about welfare reform, yes, of course, it's urgently needed, but that's for a whole new panel. On, on safe, safe and legal routes, you know, um, I, I would like more. I, I would like some more specific ones, to be honest. I mean, I, I guess, you know, it's, look, I, I know Robert's saying that the UN decide generally, but that would mean that what if somebody wants to, wants to come here? I mean, I don't, th don't think many of us need to go too far and back into our family stories to find somebody who wanted to come here and for pretty good reason. Some of the best stories in the British, so look at half the, half the cabinet are descended from people who wanted to come here and from good reasons, not half, but you know what I mean? So it seems strange to think that we would, we, we would, we would stop that for a more anonymized sort of UN-related thing. But then again, we are dealing with a whole new world with 35 million people, and, and how do you help them? So I also accept that the emotional heartstrings, which I had, which made me instinctively opposed to the Rwanda scheme until I thought through the alternatives. You know, I really wish I didn't support the Rwanda scheme, in a way, um, because I, I, hate, I, I'm, I think I'm actually well, quite moved that people would risk death, not just for life at the bottom, but beneath the bottom. I mean, somebody who is an undocumented migrant here doesn't have legal protection that, that you or I would have, wouldn't really have the ability to develop a career, and yet they still think it's worth, um, it's, it's worth death to do that. It's the ultimate compliment to our nation. If we had people in the coast of Dover risking death to get to France, then we should be really worrying. Uh, but as it, 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 in a way, we are looking at a huge compliment to our country, uh, and I, I, sh I share, I, I would like to see more specific safe and legal routes, but I also understand that right now we're talking about, I don't think, uh, I think this is such an emotional subject, this, that I think that people haven't really properly thought through. We need, obviously, we need a post-1952 um, UN refugee settlement. <coughs> we need one for the modern world. I actually think that Rishi Sunak could come up with a new settlement, not just for Britain, but for Europe. I think we've already seen this with Denmark, we've seen it with Sweden and Norway. I think other countries are realizing, as um, Foreign Minister Brandes said there, that to smash the people sm smugglers, you need to smash the model, unless people can think of another model. Now, by the way, Kate's challenge, and I completely accept this challenge, Kate, I could be here feasting on humble pie this time next year. Um, if the Rwanda policy is passed in November and it doesn't have the effect, which I say, because for the reasons that you mentioned, in which case, the, the, the are, so, by the way, I, I would also like to add that I'm not certain it would have this effect. I just think that given the Albania experience, given the Australia experience, given the Norway experience, it's got a reasonable chance. And it's the only thing I think that has a reasonable chance. I would prefer it if this government were to take my one-in, one-out, two-in policy to demonstrate that this is how we discharge our responsibility to refugees, not whether. I suspect they won't do that, not because of virtue signaling, because of vice signaling, I suppose. You know, it's going kind to, of, a, a government, real, a, a conservative government, even a Labour government, we need to stand very tough on this. Saying we're going to take two in for everyone up, I would like it, but politically it won't happen. 
Um, but this whole thing is, is, is very difficult. There is no, there are no clear answers, but what is clear to me is that we cannot continue with the current situation where we're the, the, the asylum numbers, people dying in the med. And the other thing clear to me is that the Rwanda policy is the only example of anything that's worked anywhere. Mm. Um, to your point about human rights activists coaching people on how to come across and to coaching people to risk their lives, I'm, I'm, I would dare speak for the rest of the panel and say that we all heavily would disagree with that. I mean, you shouldn't be encouraging anybody to, to risk their life. Um, George says that the geography of the UK makes it even more imperative that Rwanda works out, and I'm saying it makes it much more likely that it won't. Um, the Channel Tunnel is about 40 kilometers long. Um, the country closest to Australia is, is triple um, that, and then you know the numbers double, quadruple from there. Um, it, it strikes me as very unlikely that that's going to work. And I just continue to come back to this point because this is what it really is for me. Do, does the Tory party want this to work? In the, do they want to be the party that puts all of those asylum seekers, as I said, Refugee Council estimates three out of four coming across on the small boats right now have very legitimate claims to asylum. Do they want to be the party that puts that 75% on a plane to Rwanda and says, don't come back? Is this not the party that understands why people are doing this? And is this not the party at the moment in government that has the control any day it wants to make such meaningful change to how people might come here and the safety in which they could come here? Is this not the government that could fix the asylum system, that could address the backlog, that could allow people to work so that we're not putting that burden on the taxpayer, that could turn to the vast majority of people who are trying to come here, not because they're economic migrants, but because they genuinely face persecution and say, you know what, we're going to do what we can for you. We're going to rise to the level, at least, that we see across the EU 27 on that per capita basis, and we're just going to be that little bit better. I think it can be, and I think that the right should be there. I think this is exactly the kind of argument the right should be making. We understand the concepts of individual liberty and freedom. We should be advocating for them, certainly for residents and citizens of the UK, but for asylum seekers as well. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for, but before I let you guys go, there's that show of hands again, so I'm quite keen to see this at the moment. Um, could you put your hands up if you are in support of the Rwanda policy? Now, could you keep... Oh, that is... Looks to me that's, like, less than know. before. I mean, could you... Okay, oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. Um, okay, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up if, if that's all right. Could you keep your hand up if you're in support of Rwanda, but in Fraser's formulation, which is one out, two in? Yeah, I didn't think that. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I'll buy you, I'll buy you a beer later on, all right? Two, 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 two there's another one over there. Okay. That'll be in the manifesto. Okay. And oh, two, okay. Right. One to one. One to one. Okay, anyone? One to one. One in, one out, one in. Two out, one in. Two out, one in. Sorry, one out. Two in from the refugee One out, two in, yeah. That, that's what we take in anyway, right? No, no, that's what I'm asking, yeah. It will be very, very minimal. Yeah, it's a vote winner. It's a massive deterrent. So you'll probably drop by 80 to 90%. But it's fair that if anyone does get deported to Rwanda, it would take at least two or three, mainly females, mainly vulnerable children from very good. But you guys are in a... Yeah, great. Right, but it's so, you, me, and him, and that's it. Yeah, right? so there's three of you, and then there's a gentleman here who would do one, in, one out, one in. Um, no, no, not, not you, but the... No, no, don't worry, sir. <laughs> and how many are anti-Rwanda? 
Okay, so actually, Fraser, it looks like you're in the minority position at the end of the debate. <laughs> Everyone, thank you so much. I hope you. Um, oh, and sorry, 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 yes, how many undecided? Sorry, how many undecided? I feel like there's more undecided now. Oh, yeah, who, so, okay, okay, let me just ask the question who's changed your mind as a result of this debate? Yeah, okay, one person. In which way? Uh oh. Oh no! Uh, but towards Fraser's or towards Robert Jenrick's? <laughs> towards Fraser's. That's a casting Thank, you, Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Okay, now you guys have to shake your shake hands. Of course. Shake hands. Shake hands. <laughs>